Jeff Salzman, and I'm coming to you as always from my home office here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. We're having just a beautiful night here. It's a dusky at this point, but it's been a lovely late summer. The sky is just cobalt blue, crystal clear. The colors are vibrational. I was taking a hike this morning and the wild grasses along the trails, every shade from chartreuse, forest green, scarlet, purple, beige. I mean, it's amazing. And I'm doing my best to appreciate it in real time. Uh, I'm here tonight, as always, with our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. Hey, Brett. Hey. Hey, man. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Good. And we are joined by Corey DeVos, who can't speak because he's over at Integral Radio, but Thank you for being with us, Corey, and thank you, everybody, for joining us at our new home at Integral Radio, which is a new creation by Corey uh, at Integral Life. And as he said, he wanted to create an NPR for the soul. And I really encourage you to just basically check in anytime. It's a free 24-hour stream of hundreds of great groundbreaking discussions from the Integral Life archives and a really worthy place, and uh, it's our home. So thank you, Corey and Integral Life, for hosting us. And, you know, I, a special thanks for those of you who are tuning in live tonight. I mean, I mean, most people listen to the podcast after we post it on Sundays, but it's really nice to have a real we space of people who are tuning in, and I know you're here, and there's a, you know, we're in it together even though I'm the one who's doing most of the talking. But if you do have a comment or question or anything, there is on the web page a, a group chat screen. And you can, uh, I, I won't be reading it, but Brett and Corey will keep an eye on it. And if there's any questions or anything that uh, is, they'll throw my way. So uh, check in there. All right, so if you're a new listener, to the Daily Evolver, and you know, Daily Evolver continues to grow, and I'm really so grateful for that. But what we're doing here is we are using integral theory, uh, mainly the uh, integral maps, the aqua maps, we call them, developed by Ken Wilber, who's the leading integral philosopher on the planet, and also his home is at Integral Life. And we are using integral theory to illuminate current events in politics and culture and economics, war and peace and to use current events, conversely, to illuminate integral theory. So that's what we'll be doing tonight. And uh, I have a, a wonderful special guest tonight, Bense Ganti, who is our Hungarian friend and who runs the uh, Integral European Conference out of Budapest. And uh, he'll be here talking about our lead story tonight, which is the crisis in Europe over the immigrants and the refugees. So to the end of using integral theory, I'd like to encourage you to check out the integral theory page on my website, dailyevolver.com. 
And there are a couple charts, if you don't understand integral theory, that would be useful to check in on tonight. And Brett, don't you also have them at the, um, on the, uh, the integral radio site? Yeah, I just put the link in the okay, chat window. Okay, there's a link in the chat window. Okay, cool. All right, so that's what we do here. All right, so here's the first integral lesson. And I'm going to use real current events that are actually happening locally here in Boulder. And, um, you know, when I was talking about the beauty of this late summer season here in Boulder, I have to also admit that there is one little fly in the oatmeal or ointment, or however that cliche goes. But we had here in Boulder a crazy freeze last fall where the temperature plummeted 70 degrees in one weekend from 50-something to 17 below. It knocked back a lot of the foliage and undoubtedly killed a lot of animals too. But one of the casualties are the berry bushes that the bears in the mountain eat this time of year. They were really knocked back. So the bears in the wilderness right next to Boulder, not having a good food supply in the mountains, are coming down into the alleys of Boulder to feast on our delicious, rich, first world garbage. So a couple mornings a week, those of us who live in West Boulder here, we all wake up and see that every garbage can all the way down and up the alley has been knocked over and every Cottage cheese container is lit clean. And people have to wash their beehives and chicken coops. It's got everybody all worked up, and it's in community bulletin boards and in the newspapers, what we should do. And so, you know, the lesson from the wildlife authorities is appropriate to Boulder, which is to say that people generally respond to these situations from the level of their development, uh, their center of gravity. And in Boulder, that's green, that's postmodern on our scale of development there. So the message is, the bears live here too, people. And they were here before us. So we should try to coexist, which of course is good in Boulder because so many of us already have the coexist bumper sticker. Uh, and we need to give up some of our privilege, uh, make sure that there's no food left outside. We can't be careless. We have to get bear-proof garbage cans, which are unfortunately also human-proof about half of the time, and, you know, protect our chickens and beehives and all that good stuff. And the good news is it's working. There was an interview this morning in the Daily Camera, our daily newspaper, and the wildlife lady said that she's very happy with how Boulder is cooperating and how things are turning out. And so the bears are actually tuning out and going back with the mountains and doing the best they can. So, this is, you know, just such a perfect green solution to the problem that it made me wonder uh, how would the other altitudes or levels of development respond to this situation. And so from the level previous to postmodernism or green, you have modernism. And the modernist response would be something like, you mean there are still bears here? <laughs> you know, I, I thought like when I moved to Boulder, it's like, we had bears where I came from, too, back in western Pennsylvania, but they hadn't been there for three or four generations. Remember my grandfather talking about them, and surely in Boulder they had run them out, too. You know, they're not extinct, you know, so you have to hire somebody to get rid of them. And that's the modernist solution. And you don't even want to necessarily know how they do it. You write a check and it's done. 
So the stage before that is amber traditionalism. And this is the worldview of the hunter that the modernist would hire to get rid of the bears. So the hunter goes and picks out the right weapon from his gun collection, gathers up his three oldest sons, and goes out and kills the bear, hunts it down, makes bear stew and a bear skin rug. And that's amber traditionalism. The response from the previous stage, or the red warrior stage, is we send out a band of warriors on horses to run the bears down. We set upon them with spears. We might sacrifice a few warriors in the process, but we bring back their paws and their heart and their head as totems. At the stage previous to that, the tribal stage, we would pray and chant to the great bear spirit uh, to, to save us. And, and we might sacrifice a goat or maybe a virgin, depending on how seriously we took it. And of course, then there is at the original stage of, of, of early humans that we call archaic. At archaic, we get eaten by the bears. That's the display of human evolution in just a couple minutes. And, and we can see this pattern arising in stories all over the world. And there's a big story that we want to talk about. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, the Europe and, and Middle Eastern refugee crisis, the refugees pouring into Europe from Syria. And so we'll unpack that. And let's start, uh, Brett, by playing the, uh, the question that we got on the speak pipe. There's a, a way of, of communicating with me, if you wish. Um, you can, of course, email me at uh, jeff at dailyevolver.com. But you can also go to the website dailyevolver.com and you'll see an orange button called SpeakPipe, and you can leave me a voicemail, and I often play them on the show. And I want to open this segment by playing what I thought was a really sort of wonderful and courageous and articulate uh, message that I got from one of our listeners, Lori in California. So Brett, let's hear from Lori in California. It's about a minute and a half. I'm feeling really torn by this refugee crisis. It's politically incorrect, but Muslims scare me. And their culture is so different and women are treated so different. And it seems like Muslims in the educated, um, developed countries can still turn jihadist. Uh, Islam is a mystery, a dark mystery. And we all love our own cultures. So I know if I were in Europe, I would feel humanely obliged to bring in migrants, but they're bringing in a totally different culture than their own, at least in small towns they are. And um, it seems to me, if we're all going to integrate, move toward an integral world, then we have to do this. And it's happening faster than we thought. And I just would love some, uh, some help with this actually, as I'm sure Europeans would. <laughs> okay. Love you and love the Daily Evolver. So hope to hear you. Thanks. Yeah. And thank you, Lori. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a big deal and it's fraught with all sorts of things that I think really integral helps us to see a little more clearly. So again, just the basic facts, 4 million people leaving war toward Syria 
Uh, 500,000 have arrived so far this year. Another million in Jordan, another million in Lebanon, another 5,000 a day arriving, sometimes more in Europe. Uh, it's a crisis in motion right now. We're actually seeing it. And like, it's, it's like, I often think of the fog of war, that it's like it's hard to even get the facts because it's happening so quickly and they change so fast. And I noticed the EU met today to try to bring some order to the chaos. And that's an ongoing thing, too. And God bless them. So on this um, Syrian thing, the perspective from the right is that this is the end of Europe. And Europe will be overrun by, just as Laurie was saying, people from a different culture. And you see headlines, Europe has signed her death warrant rolling out the red carpet for terrorists. And it's not just this crisis. It's like there's a green light ongoing for, you know, as the conservative sphere, for decades, for millions of people throughout the second world, first world, Middle East, Africa, even Asia, inviting them to come and live off the fruits of a culture that they cannot or will not really be able to contribute to. And these cultures are precious and hard won and hard fought. Denmark and Hungary and Sweden, these are countries of under 10 million people. Germany, 80 million people. It's an astonishing problem that really does call for an integral response. So as we formulate that, we'll look at What's the perspective from the left? And from the left, the response to this crisis is, these are human beings who are running for their lives. You see their stories, the, the tragedy, that 80 people suffocating in a cattle car, uh, the little boy washed up on the Turkish beach. Um, isn't it amazing how one or two images can really penetrate the indifference or the, the, what the Buddhists would call the ignorance that keep us from feeling in to the suffering of the world. So, you know, from any perspective, and this is interesting from an integral perspective, so we talk about, you know, the world moving towards greater truth and goodness and beauty and so forth. This is as bad as anything that has ever happened to human beings in all of history. Suffering, death, rape, children, crucifixion, beheading, the whole bit. And we have to, as civilized human beings, help them. We'll figure it out later, but we have to bring them in and take care of them. And this is the perspective from the left. So I want to tease this apart and see if we can find an integration that really includes the best of both of those arguments and both of those perspectives, because that's what integral does. It integrates. So to do that, I want to start with a um, segment from an interview that I did with one of our integral luminaries, Ben Segante, who is from Hungary. And of course, Hungary is at the epicenter of this refugee crisis. And it's gotten a lot of bad press and a lot of bad images and a bad reputation. 
um, because of, you know, the response of the police at the borders, of pushing people back and using water hoses and rolling out fences of razor wire. And it just has a bad feel to it. And yet this is, you know, a member of the EU. It's a civilized, beautiful country. Uh, it's where the integral European conference is held. The next one is being held in the spring. And Ben Say is putting these together. And he is, you know, a leading integralist worldwide. But in Hungary, he founded the Hungarian Integral Academy in Budapest, which is a very, very successful integral enterprise, uh, has, has uh, put hundreds of people through an intensive three-year program in developing integral consciousness, draws people from all over the world, and then he also does the integral flow experience because he lives uh, a good bit of the time here in the U.S. And he does, this is a short version that he does out of California. And while we're on the topic of what Bensei does with the Integral European Conference, I do want to put in a plug because I'm a booster for this conference. It's a great conference. And Hungary, despite what you've seen, is full of beautiful, civilized people. And Bensei will describe some of what's going on in a minute. But I do want to make the point that if you're a little worried about going to Hungary, don't be. Uh, this is a civilized country. The conference is May 4th through 8th. There's a bus tour afterwards from 9, uh, May 9th through 11th that Brett and I took last year. And it was just a two years ago, rather. It was just a, a scream. It was great. And also the conference itself, Bense, is very, very good at using the karma of the moment with a group. So what is happening in Europe will undoubtedly be part of the grist for the mill of what we will actually work with. And I trust move the ball as we work with each other. So I, um, let me just see here. I want to play the excerpt. A couple things I want to say is that I, you know, basically ask him, uh, this is an interview that I did with Ben Say earlier today, actually, uh, uh, just a couple hours ago, and we're going to uh, post the whole thing. It's about, I think, 40 minutes. But I'm going to play a clip now that's about eight minutes, and then I'll play a clip later that is about four minutes. And uh, I just want to make the point that when he says blue, he's talking about stage of development. He's talking about what we refer to as amber traditionalism on our chart but he's using the spiral dynamics, which many of you also know, uh, the spiral dynamics uh, color blue. So I just want to do that little translation. He's going to talk about the response of the Hungarian people, and he's also going to talk about the response of his government, which is led by Viktor Orban, who is a conservative that, you know, is taking a lot of the, the heat. He would be the equivalent of uh, if Ted Cruz got elected president of the United States. That's who we're dealing with in Hungary. So here we go. From Bensegante, uh, play it, Brett, if you would. So the general European consensus or, or close to consensus that we should accept refugees. You know, we shouldn't accept all of them because they are too much. You know, first, almost all states reacted with green compassion or, or most states like, oh, Let's let them in. Let's give them food. Let's hug them. Hey, you know, you are welcome. Germany stated publicly that, you know, you are welcome. And uh, but then very soon, different states, when they experience daily on the ground that they can't handle, they started to shut down borders. First, Hungary shut down 
a little portion of its border, like maybe 5% of the totality of border were shut down, just one particular stretch at the Serbian border. That's a real fraction. And of course, the Western European countries were very mad at Orban and, and created uh, uh, extremely, uh, I think, exaggerated news about Hungary. Like, like they, they took one photograph and interpreted it in a horrible way. So Hungarians were very much ashamed, actually. And we felt really, first of all, the Hungarian people are not the government. They have a completely different approach that the current Orban government has. Majority of the country is in a different opinion, which is not broadcasted uh, by Western media. Only Orban's bad moves are broadcasted. Yeah. So Westerners uh, easily mix up Orban with 10 million other people, which is very sad. So actually Hungarians feel, most Hungarians ashamed, deeply ashamed. And uh, second, uh, Orban has been uh, in power in the second term now. Last year started the second term, and he made a dramatic shift. Basically, he, he was the true Democrat, and the, the country knew him as, as, as a key player of helping Hungary um, making its transition in the late 80s, early 90s, from socialism to democratic capitalist nation-state. Which, ha which happened successfully. So he was one of the young, actually the party, his party, Fidesz, is literally called, it's an abbreviation of uh, yeah, the, the Alliance of Young Democrats. That's what Fidesz means, the party name. So the ruling party in Hungary now is the Alliance of Young Democrats because at the uh, early 90s, they were young, just left university, like, like 20 plus youngsters, which was very sexy at the time. You know, they're so young people go to politics, you know, and are true, honest fighters for democracy and, uh, you know, and, and help transition. And so everybody knew him and his friends and party as, as the true young Democrats who hold the future in their hands for the democracy. And he first came to power like prime minister in 98. Uh, and at that time, he was, you know, still a Democrat. And then uh, he came to power again in 2010. And by that time, he turned from a Democrat liberal person to a conservative person, you know, which, which was a surprise. You know. But still, people, due to this long, you know, almost two decades of, of memory of the young Democrats, you know, trusted him. And, and he, he started to show signs of taking care of Hungarian interests because by around 2010, you know, Hungary also suffered the, the bad parts of being an EU member. Like, for example, the EU wanted to basically eradicate Hungarian produce, you know, and install EU produce in the Hungarian market. So things that, that local people didn't want. So first of all, Hungary wanted to become part of the EU. And, and basically the whole country voted, yes, let's be EU member. And we became EU members in 2004. So since 2004, Hungary is in the EU. Since 99, Hungary is a NATO state. And since 2007, it's a Schengen state. So basically now we are a NATO EU Schengen state. But we, we experienced the positive aspects of EU and the negative aspects. So, so Orban started to do a mixed politics of, of uh, democracy and representing Hungarian interests and started to go against the EU, you know, politics. So, and he started to be like a black sheep in the Euro European Union because of this. 
And this divided Hungarians already at that time. Like half of the population said, Orban shouldn't, you know, you know, shouldn't be eccentric in the EU. He should just comply because we want to be EU member. And we were a little bit afraid that if he, you know, he's so eccentric, the EU might refuse Hungary. So the, the, the normal, everyday, you know, liberal Hungarians are very much EU, pro-EU. And Orban started to be more and more radical in that uh, eccentric nature that he knows it better than the EU and more conservative. So much so that by the second term that is now, there was a dramatic change in his policy. He, he publicly stated that he creates an illiberal state. So basically, Hungarians felt betrayed and shocked. So, so don't think a minute that if the Western media criticizes Orban, Hungarians wouldn't know that. Just they don't dare to speak up because the, the state started to become more auto, authoritarian and less democratic. And then Orban basically used his democratic power to curb democracy and, and rewrite the constitution to stabilize his power. So currently, the, the Hungarian government is, 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 is Orban-centric. There is no real, um, um, no, no other parties really in the government. And this is unseen in Hungary. So since the system changed in 89, it was a, 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 a progressive, gradual, you know, democratic capitalist state. There was no break. You know, there right. was political games, but the basic frame was still a democratic, multi-party, you know, government. So this, this shift in 2014, the second term of Orban, was really a shock. Like, like us Hungarians are under shock and are under feeling betrayed, you know, and, and, and helpless because Hungarians don't want revolution and don't want bloodshed. There has been so much war. The, 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 the Hungary is sitting here for 1,000 years. And there is so much war and revolutions that in Europe people want peace, you know, and, and, and Hungarians want peace as well. And they rather wait until the next uh, election in 2018 and that, un until they feel they are not, the, the, li the circumstances of life are still okay. You know, yeah. business goes almost as usual. Yeah, so it's a good description of really what's going on in this age of Viktor Orban in Hungary. And, you know, the problems that arise, for, especially for people who are operating from a modern, postmodern, and even integral stage of development. And as he said, the first impulse for, from a lot of people, not just in Hungary, but throughout Europe, was green. Because the center of gravity, particularly as we get into Northern Europe and Western Europe, is green. And green has to get real in a way that, you know, every stage in a way, as every stage moves into the next, part of it is they have to get real about what they thought the world should be and what it is. It's like an amber traditionalism. People have to get real about the fact that Jesus probably isn't coming again. You know, at least not in the way we thought he was. And, and for Muslims, it's the same thing. The 13th Caliphate isn't coming back. And getting real about that is one of the things that launch you into the next stage, Orange Modernity. And then Orange Modernity has to get real 
about the reality that not everything is logical and reasonable. That's what they have to get, that, you know, people can be logical and reasonable, but they're also motivated by animal spirits and cultural karmas that science can't even begin to fathom, and that these unseen forces can actually lead to gas chambers and Hiroshima, and you got to get real about the limits of the scientistic mindset. And when you do, it's one of the things that launch you into green post-modernity. And then green post-modernity gets sensitive to, you know, it's basically its job is to awaken the heart and to become sensitive to the plight of people who have been left behind in all the previous means. So people who are beaten down, poor, victimized. This is, you know, this is these people in these war-torn countries. Um, green is world-centric. So it considers everybody to be in the circle of worthy of moral consideration. It wants everybody to be included in the good life, protected by, you know, safety nets that ensure peace and safety and security and education and health. And what they have to get real about is the good life is a fragile thing held together in these, you know, societies, third, I'm sorry, first world societies who have made it the first world. Hard fought. You know, a lot of sturm und drang in the histories of all countries. But first world countries have developed adequately to produce a safety net for their people, but it can't be endlessly diluted. Uh, particularly for people who don't get it, but, you know, want the fruit. So this, um, I, I, we talked about this a bit, and again, the whole talk with Bensey will be published as well. Uh, but here's another excerpt, I think it's just a couple-minute excerpt, um, where he talks about how, um, well, you know, just how he handles some of the moral dilemma of this. So, Brett, if you play excerpt two, please. I think Orban has has right in one point and one aspect, and some Europeans sees that too. So even if we, you know, liberal, orange green people criticize him moving to blue, you know, and 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 de democratize the country to a certain extent, at a situation where unregistered thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people simply march through your country, blue has its place. You see what I mean? Yes. So basically, it's a boundary violation. So it's red. What's happening, even if there is no bloodshed, but the very fact that in your home, you know, suddenly you wake up in your bed and you see people walking through your home <laughs> you know, who don't introduce themselves, even demand you to lend your car because they are going to somewhere, you know, whoa, then you go like, whoa, you know, that's that's kind of boundary violation. So there you go. You try to close your door or you try to ask them, what, who are you? What do you want? You know, let's, let's regulate the situation. So actually, what's, what's a bad news in a, in a modern, postmodern times, going blue, is a good news in a situation of red. So, and Orban said that we are building a fence in the Hungarian-Serbian border to actually stop those people and register them and just at least be able to create a gate where they can come in. You know, there's not only a fence, but there is a gate in the fence. And they started to build registration posts there. 
and started to set up a legal system to register them. And basically the, the EU said, fuck you, Orban, why are you be building a fence? So the initial reaction was like green, green heart, oh, poor people running away from war, how can you do that? And Orban said, you know, sorry, but we need to keep actually Schengen. Schengen means that you cannot enter the EU without a passport and without registration, right? Like you can't enter the United States. In the United States, you even have to tell if you have visited a farm, you know, with animals and all that, let alone saying your name and showing your passport. So basically, Orban said that uh, we are going to simply defend Schengen and defend the EU, you know, and that's why we are building the... So there was immediately a clash of green and blue in, in that regard. And the problem is that Orban already annoyed the European Union, you know, with his eccentric nature. So the, it was easy for the European Union to jump on him and blame him and blame Hungary. That's the good news about blue in this situation. The bad news about Orban's blue in this situation, that Orban is not only regulating, but is also unfriendly. So he doesn't help the refugees who are already in Hungary. So the Hungarian civil society started to self-organize, created volunteer organizations and helped the refugees which is unfortunately also not reported in the Western media. Like all Hungarians are, you know, rude, cruel. No. Hungarian people are actually there everywhere. And uh, they are providing food. You know, they are giving tents and mattresses. And uh, they are organizing for children, like, uh, you know, showing videos in the evenings. There are doctors, Hungarian doctors, who go there and help the people. And there was a German news which highlighted a German doctor went the Hungarian train station and help the people because Hungarians don't do it. They do. It's just no. not covered in media. You yeah. see? So there is actually an injustice in the Western media towards Hungary and that made me speak, speak up. That's why I came out because I'm not a politician. Usually I don't do much politics but I just felt uh, ashamed because of the Orban's, you know, government anyway in the West and now I also felt a little bit, you know, attacked by the Western media uh, due to Orban's, you know, positions. And I think the broadcasting in those, in, in, in the Western news currently is not objective on Hungary. So I felt that as, as a Hungarian ordinary person, you know, not a politician, I need to speak up that Kaleti is full of ordinary Hungarians helping, you know, doctors, civils, and um, it's, it's not so black and white as the media shows. And Hungarians are good people. So, yes, thank you very much, Bense. And again, the Full interview is posted as well. So let's look at a few integral lessons from this situation. Uh, first, and we generally want to do this in uh, when we're looking at evolutionary unfoldment, and that is we want to put this crisis in an evolutionary context. And as I said earlier, every individual story of death and destruction is as bad as the next and is as bad as it was in any other time. But the only thing worse than 4 million of these stories, which is the refugees from Syria, is 40 million of these stories. Or consider this from the book Dark Continent, Europe's 20th Century, great book by Mark Mausewer, and he says a total of close to 90 million people 
were either killed or displaced in Europe between the years 1939 and 1948. Now, this is a colossal number, 90 million people killed or displaced after, during and after World War II. And, um, you know, we don't even want to talk about comparing anything to that. But what's interesting is that with all of the atrocities, and they continued long after, um, for at least for several years after the armistice, as, you know, people were repatriated to their original countries, you know, the rapes and the atrocities. And an astonishing thing happened, though, after two or three years. People got on with things. They got on with life and their future. They somehow, it's a miraculous thing, in my opinion, but somehow they got it out of their systems and began to live together in Europe. Not in perfect harmony, to be sure, but adequately enough so that their children could forget about it and their grandchildren never hear about it in the first place. And again, I find that astonishing what's happened to the psyche of the European people just 70 years after one of the most horrendous, if not the most horrendous conflagration in human history. And it's almost to me, when I think evolutionarily about life giving birth to life and era giving birth to era, it's almost like what women describe in having a baby, that it's the worst pain imaginable, but also, but almost supernaturally forgotten. A woman friend of mine described it as, having amnesia about the pain of giving birth to her son. So, you know, we have to sort of trust that, that human beings have this amazing resilience, particularly human beings that are at the, you know, adequately modern stage where they sort of decouple from these mythic, historical stories that are still so galvanizing to the earlier stages. And that gets me to the integral lesson number two, and that it's really more about stage of development when we talk about integrating new people than it is about their culture. Uh, for me, I mean, I have more of a mutual understanding with a modern Syrian than I would with a red hell's angel, you know, in the next town. So, you know, many of these Syrians are modernists. They're educated. Uh, you see them. I mean, it was striking to me. It, it, it sort of made me feel a little bad in a way because I noticed that, you know, these, these lines of refugees and they're wearing jeans and berets and, you know, they look like hipsters the world over. They interview them and they're smart and they're educated and they speak good English. And it's just, I felt so bad for these people, you know, and I think of these, you know, uh, Rwanda and these cultures, the different earlier rate cult and these conflagrations in these earlier stages, I just don't have the resonance. I don't have the connection. It's easier. I have to, you know, remind myself. I have to make myself realize, oh, yeah, 
you know, these are human beings in the same way, even though I can't relate to them. It's not as easy. But these Syrians, a lot of them, it's, you know, really easy. And, you know, what's the difference? One of the major teachings of integral theory is that, well, of course, every stage is radically different, even though it includes the previous stage. It's radically different from the previous stage. Something new comes online in the cosmos that literally never existed before. It's the creative impulse of the Big Bang still at work. And what happens between the traditional and the modern stage of development is that we have a differentiation of what we call the values spheres of reality. And here's what I mean. Modern people have a separation between their public reality and their private reality, between their public world, their public persona, and their private world. And that is allowed in modernity for the first time in human history. In pre-modern cultures, you're actually not allowed to think anything you want. You have to believe in the mythic story that is the organizing principle of the culture. But in the modernity, we have a new thing that arises. This private sphere, my world, my sovereign world of Jeffness, where I can believe anything I want. I can believe that the Bible is true. I can believe the Koran is true. I can believe that Eckhart Tolle is true. I can believe in the church of the flying spaghetti monster, which is actually a church. <laughs> um, you know, I can believe that adulterers and homosexuals should be stoned. Um, or I can believe they should be fabulous. Uh, it doesn't matter. Because in the public sphere, which is another dimension of my reality, I'm not allowed to act that out. At least not in the way that hurts anybody else. I have to give everybody else the same right uh, to hold his or her beliefs without being hurt or coerced or discriminated against in any way. And, you know, we talk about we move from this stage to the next. And, you know, it's not an easy transition. It's a messy transition. And we see it all the time. We saw it a couple days ago, uh, exemplified by the comments made by the number two contender for the Republican nomination here in the U.S., and that's Dr. Ben Carson. And he said that he would never support a Muslim being president, being in the White House. And he appropriately got a lot of blowback for that. He was reminded that the U.S. Constitution, no less, requires that there be no religious test for public office, black and white, that there's over 3 million American Muslims who are good citizens, including over 100,000 that serve in the military. So Carson, you know, I think thought about it for a day or so, and he came back to explain that if Muslims were to renounce theocracy, if they were to renounce Sharia law and all of that stuff and pledge allegiance to the United States, then maybe. And he also went on to say that it's the same thing with a Christian. If there was a Christian that wanted to install a theocracy, that he wouldn't be for them too. And to that I say, very good, Dr. Ben Carson. That is a very important integral developmental lesson. 
It's not about the religion. Good Lord, there are Muslims who are modern, postmodern, integral. I just hosted one this weekend, Amir, Amir Nasser, who wrote My Islam, um, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and uh, Doubt. Oh, I'm forgetting the name of the book, but it's a fabulous book, and he's a fabulous integral teacher. He's, he was um, raised in Somalia and Qatar and, and Indonesia, I mean, the trifecta. Of, of Muslim cultures, and he's as integral as the day is long. Uh, and, of course, there are pre-modern, lots of pre-modern Muslims, and you have to say that Islam has a lower, if you put the whole religion, it has a lower center of gravity. I mean, that's not an insult. That's just a fact, and that's something that we have to take into account. So, you know, this is something that I think the Europeans are hip to, and I hope so, because Europe has to do better with assimilating uh, Muslims in every European culture. The Turks in 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 um, um, in Germany, the Algerians and Northern Africans in in France, um, and in in uh, UK as well. And I think that you know human beings grow and learn. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. So, the third, I think, lesson that we learned from this is that wealthy countries or first world countries have to make sure that second and third world countries are livable. No more deposing dictators. We all learned a very painful lesson there. There are other ways to... to work with it. And of course, every situation is different. We have Cuba, we have you know, North Korea, we have we had Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi. And what we saw in the Middle East is that when you take the lid off, um, if you dispose a dictator, then you're going to release a Pandora's box of tribal passions. Uh, that's what the dictator was holding in check. It's a little bit like children of overly strict or abusive parents. Uh, the kids are either beaten down and passive, or they're wild and out of control. And this is what we found. And so we gotta be smarter about this. I mean, I go back to the Pottery Barn Rule by Colin Powell, which was, this is what he warned George W. Bush to no avail, presumably, before uh, we invaded Iraq. And that is, you break it, you bought it. Uh, we have to probably, I think this is something we also learned from the mistakes of Obama, is that we probably have to keep some military force unless we're willing to sit back and watch Islam go through the Muslim equivalent of the Hundred Years' War, which is, you know, much more tragedy and suffering to come. And, you know, we're working out how to work with this. But in the meantime, we, um, you know, have the the karma and the results of what happened with the overthrow of Hussein and all of what has transpired. Now, we are trying a different path, and I give Obama credit here, uh, with Iran. Uh, we're trying the, you know, a, a completely different approach here, where it's not about attacking and bombing and uh, taking over or any of that stuff. It's about betting on the modernists betting on the elected President Rouhani versus Khomeini, the Ayatollah, 
and um, and I think that's a good bet. But that's really the the that's the game to watch over the next several years, uh, and um, we'll see how that goes. We're, humanity is working it out in real time. We're getting smarter, and you know, God isn't you know giving us an easy time. It's not apparently in his or her nature. So there's one other, I think, insight that I think Integral leads us to here. And that is that we really, despite the pain and suffering and the setbacks and U-turns and wrong turns, karma is at work. And the karma really is moving towards ever greater unfoldments of goodness, truth, and beauty. And by karma, I'm talking about, you know, the sum of cause and effect in your world, in the world of you, in my world, Jeff, in the world of town, your culture, um, your country, your nation, the world. And it's weird, but it's even in real time here with what's happening in Europe, it's working itself out. I mean, we say we see Germany taking this heroic step. I mean, it's really so touching and inspiring to see Mama Merkel, Angela Merkel, um, you know, just decide to take on 800,000 refugees. And, you know, she's it's decried as an emotional decision. But to me, it's, you know, Germany continuing to pay its karmic debt for you know, the first half of the 20th century. And, um, you know, and Germany has, it's like Fareed Zakaria wrote, I, I actually pulled this paragraph because I thought it was so good. And that is, he, he wrote, modern Germany has tried as hard as any nation ever has to repent for its past. It has paid out hundreds of billions of dollars in reparations and foreign aid. Its culture is steeped in the memory of its misdeeds, with memorials, museums, and monuments marking the most gruesome chapter of Germany's history. On the grounds of the former Nazi headquarters in Munich, a new documentation center for the history of National Socialism provides a detailed, brutally honest history of the rise of Nazism. And that's, you know, the astonishing thing that Germany is expressing, I think, for all of humanity, and that is this sort of great enlightenment that comes from postmodern consciousness and integral consciousness. So that Germany is becoming, it is, it's, it's, it's voted the most admired country in the world. And to add, you know, what she's doing basically is adding 1% to the population of Syrians. And I know they'll do their best practices in terms of who they choose. And, you know, again, we privilege modernists because that's really the game. Uh, but it will change Germany. And that is okay. You know, we all change. It's, it's one of the great principles, I think, of Buddhism. It's what they really emphasize. And that is that there's no fixed point. There's no fixed reference point from which to see anything. And that everything is arising, as they say, codependently or interpenetrated, 
as Thich Nhat Hanh would say. And I think that is a beautiful vision for the future, actually. And in the sacred world to come, we will all be German and Syrian and Sudanese and Chinese and homosexuals and, you know, everybody will have it all. And we won't even want to imagine how limiting life was when we were just, you know, captured by any one of these. It would be as if pieces of us were missing. So, you know, karma is real. This, this endless history of cause and effect is real. And it's also, and I love this teaching from Buddhism, a uh, very fundamental teaching about karma is that karma is unfathomable. I mean, we actually don't know how it all began and how, you know, Germans became so German and the French became so French and that everybody is who they are as a result of God knows what for God knows how long. And, and that is a world-centric perspective because we see that we are all part of all of humanity and all of it capital I. And this becomes then a cosmocentric perspective because we see that we are all a product of all of evolution of all time and that we are carrying the karma of the Big Bang, which is creativity, making something out of nothing. And it's just part of our being here and alive to want to continue to grow and become more, more complex, more capable, more loving, more wise, ever more human and beyond. So, you know, God bless Germany. God bless the Syrians. God bless us all. Uh, it's a grand experiment and um, a grand challenge that the Germans and Syrians and we are all worthy of. So, uh, it's... I think we could take a couple quick questions here. Um, okay, here's the book. Thank you, Brett. My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt Freed My Soul. And that is by uh, Amir Nasser, N-A-S-R, and he is a brilliant young integral teacher. Okay, a question from Integral Unarlion. Sorry for mangling that. But the question is, would you say the center of gravity of most Mexican immigrants to the U.S. is similar to the center of gravity of Muslim immigrants to Europe? It seems to be more about a clash of culture than a clash of consciousness. Well, I, no, I think that the culture definitely matters. And again, these flavors of karma of culture, you would, would actually, from the integral maps, we would say that we're looking at typology. You know, that uh, different cultures are, you know, if we use the Enneagram, they're some are eight, some are three, some are one, some are, it's, you know, just amazing how different they can be. But I would say that um, the center of gravity of, the, the, there's more people coming into Europe from Syria that are from a, even pre-traditional, more tribal Stage and that's those. Those are the people that are most difficult, problematic, uh, 
because, you know, they can't work with what they don't see. And I think that the center of gravity of most Mexicans is probably pretty firmly traditional. Now, again, what really is in some ways more important is the people who are like the people who are drawn from Mexico to the United States are the most, in a sense, either the most desperate or the most developed. And that's true, actually, in Syria, too. There are some people who they just basically had to leave. There was The place was bombed out. Uh, and, you know, then that, you're getting everybody at that point. But as long as there's some volition involved, then people who immigrate are the people who are most adventurous. They're the people who are more likely to be Enneagram 3s and 8s. Um, and they are also the more developed because they actually see that they would be happier in a modern culture. So I don't know if I answered that question, but you know, I, I stirred the pot a little bit, uh, and I don't know. You know, it'll we'll see. Okay, next. Oh, the one I like the one about the bear. What does teal do with the bear? And I thought about that, you know, because I, I did that little, you know, ladder of development, and I'm not sure it'd be a heck of a lot different than green. At least maybe that just speaks to my own greenness. I, I, I do think about the uh, post I did a while back about the eco-modernists. And one of their principles is they actually do want to have more of a hard, bright line between civilization and the natural world. So we don't mix them up and confuse them so much. And, you know, I find that interesting. I find that that could be a very intelligent wise, compassionate, humane way to actually, you know, coexist with the natural so that the natural world gets to be natural and wild. And, you know, so maybe, I mean, when I think about the practical, what does that actually mean? You know, I hear Donald Trump in my ear, you know, that it's, um, we're going to have to make a big, beautiful wall between us and the wilderness with some big, beautiful gates. So I don't know, I get confused there. All right, next. Could this, we're talking back the European crisis again. Could this be a historic opportunity for Islam as a whole? My sense is that there would be a forced cultural social evolution as a largely pre-modern tradition, and we're talking the Muslims, suddenly finds itself surrounded and suspended by a modern secular structure with modern secular limits on behavior, etc. Yes, I think that's true. And... Um, the karma and the, the stage of development of the culture that we find ourselves in does have a, a, a magnetic effect. It either pulls us up or it pulls us down. And so, yes, they would be pulled up. Now, provided that they don't do what immigrants have, unfortunately, traditionally done, particularly in Europe, not so much in the United States, here too, but particularly in Europe, is that they tend to ghettoize. So then they have their little mini Libyas or their mini Al Algeria in the middle of the modern France or whatever it might be. And then you have the second, actually the second generation in that kind of a ghetto is more dangerous than the first generation because here they are, they're unmoored from whatever may have kept their parents, you know, their hearts straight in terms of culture. Uh, so they don't have any of the traditions, and they're not accepted by the modern culture. 
you know, they're discriminated against. They have, um, you know, all sorts of problems with education and language and so forth. And that's when you get uh, the dangerous second generation. And we're seeing that. So there, uh, I, I will point out that there is one, you know, really extreme example of countries that have managed to assimilate different warring tribes and sects. And that's this amazing little miracle called Singapore, where we had this basically semi-benevolent dictator for three decades. His last name's U-W-E-Y, I'm forgetting, or Y-E-W, I'm forgetting his first name. But they literally forced people from different religions and sects to live in the same blocks and housing projects and neighborhoods, that each housing development had a quota that had to include a percentage of this group and that group and the other group. Now, this is the nanny state run amok. This is actually an example of what was one of the things that most sunk the liberals in the United States was when they tried forced busing, where you you know, make sure that schools are integrated by busing kids who are white and black to schools, you know, miles away from their closest school. And it's a very, very um, understandable and um, well-intentioned move of social engineering. In the United States, it was completely shut down, completely rejected. Uh, but in Singapore, they did it. And so they have, you know, they, they created out of a malaria-ridden backwater island in Malaysia, one of the great city-states of the modern world. I mean, it's astonishing. So there's some best practices in there somewhere, and um, extreme situations cause call for extreme solutions. And um, we'll see how Germany, particularly Germany, I mean, they're the ones who are taking on the big experiment here. Uh, we'll see how they, what they learn and how they do it. And again, God bless everybody, no exceptions. One of my favorite bumper stickers. Okay, folks, well, we're a little over, but what fun. Let's stay in touch. Jeff Salzman at dailyevolver.com. Well, thank you, everybody. Check in next time for the next edition of the Daily Evolver Live. Good night.